1: Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government, and I have accepted. So I want to make a big, open, and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats. We thought we'd come to the hospital just to get everything checked out, and then things sort of sped up, and then it all happened very, very quickly, and um, a baby popped out at about 12 o'clock. So dealing with government deficits must be line one of our plan for recovery. And people should be in no doubt that we will do everything necessary to restore order to Britain's streets and to make them safe for the law abiding. Tonight British forces are in action over Libya. It is clear to me that the British Parliament, reflecting the views of the British people, does not want to see British military action. I get that and the government will act accordingly. Calm down dear, calm down, calm down. Listen, listen to the doctor. And when we have negotiated that new settlement, we will give the British people a referendum with a very simple in or out choice. The institution of marriage is now open to all. The people of Scotland have spoken and it is a clear result they have kept our country of four nations together. His shadow Chancellor was asked on the television, could he think of one single business leader? And do you know what he said? Do you know what he said, Mr Speaker? He said, bill somebody. (laughs) Mr Speaker, bill somebody's not a person, bill somebody's Labour's policy. I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, and I will now form a majority Conservative government. I believe we are stronger, safer and better off inside a reformed European Union. And that is why I'll be campaigning with all my heart and soul to persuade the British people to remain in the reformed European Union that we have secured today. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. Nothing is really impossible if you put your mind to it. After all, as I once said, I was the future once.
2: And welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is a second in a two-part special where I sit down with David Cameron, who went from ordinary citizen to Conservative MP, Conservative leader, Conservative Prime Minister, and back to ordinary citizen again in just 15 years. So let's start at the end. Where have you been? Have you been, like Danny Dyer suggested, trotters up in Nice?
1: Uh, no, I've not been to, How have you spent the uh, last three I've years? I've not been to
2: Nice. I've been,
1: obviously, writing this book, but I've also tried to build a, a set of things that interest me. So I'm president of... Alzheimer's Research UK. The government I led did a lot to help with the battle against dementia and I want to continue that in my uh, new life. Um, I'm passionate about National Citizen Service, something I set up as Prime Minister, the Europe's fastest growing youth volunteering programme. And I'm president of some patrons who help back it and support it. It's now one in six 16-year-olds take part and I want to see that grow and expand. So I've done those things. I've um, written the book and I've also working with some businesses, particularly in the area of tech. I mean, I think one of the other successes we had is the tech scene in Britain, whether fintech, biotech, meditech. There's been a great generator of jobs and growth, and so I'm working with some, some businesses as well. So it's a mixture of things, but uh, hopefully being a better husband and father at the at the same time. Do you because, miss being Prime Minister? Yes, of course. It's the most you know incredible opportunity. It was a huge honour to to be able to do that job. I mean, it is completely exhausting, as I put in the book, you, you discover a sort of new form of tiredness where you get to the end of the day and you think back and you literally can't even remember what happened at the beginning of the day because in between there have been so many cabinet meetings, emergency meetings, calls with Putin or Obama, parliamentary statements, things you've had to do on the door of number 10, people you've had to meet, that by the end your brain is sort of literally, you can almost feel it sort of frying. So talk us Uh, through a normal day. When when did your day as Prime Minister start? I used to sort of set an alarm for 5.30, 5.45, and I tried... I'm very quick out of bed in the morning. I'm a a morning person. And so I used to try and get down to the kitchen and lay out my red boxes and have as long as I possibly could before the children got up and, and, and breakfast started and everything, going through the paperwork for the day, the meetings that were coming up, any urgent things I had to sign or read. Um, and then from there, I normally had a 8.30 meeting um, with my core team. And then it was, you know, National Security Council meetings, cabinet meetings. We worked out, I think, a quarter of a prime minister's time is on diplomatic meetings, other heads of state and prime ministers, foreign travel, um, visiting, uh, and, and other sort of foreign issues. I think the bit of the job that is, is sort of, well, it's all challenging, but one of the challenges is It is so multifaceted that you go from one minute you're making a serious statement in the House of Commons, the next minute you've got to make a jokey speech at a charity lunch, the next minute you're meeting the widow of someone who was served in Afghanistan, then you're having a vital meeting about some issue that's suddenly come up, then you've got a call with Vladimir Putin about what's happening in Syria, and you've got to be on top of your game for all of them. There's never a meeting you're in which you're not chairing. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that's what um, you know. You can't sort of sit back. You can't sit on oh, this isn't and quiet me, so I can no, I can I can al- duck al- out. You're this always way. on, and you have to keep changing from all of those aspects and try to do all of them well. Um, and that's one of the one of the one of the big
2: big challenges. And what's it like living above the shop? Uh, that Mar- I liked. Margaret Thatcher said she liked it. Gordon Brown said he didn't.
1: I didn't think I was going to like it because I loved our family home in in North Kensington and and, and all of that. But actually. It, it's the, it does mean you see your children. So, uh, you know, I could talk to them every morning before they went off on the school run. And Florence, of course, you know, was a baby for most of the time she was born in 2010. So we had six years of her growing up in number 10. Um, and so I could, I could pop up in the middle of the day sometimes and just have five minutes with her to sort of escape from the madness of it all. So I liked, uh, and Samantha did an amazing job at creating a sort of family home that was sufficiently different to the rest of the building. So you felt when you had crossed the threshold um, into the flat that, you know, you were in you were in your own your own space.
2: Let's go back to when you first become Prime Minister. So in 2010, you had five days of coalition talks. You finally got it over the line. So you go to see the Queen. What happens when you get? Go, what's going through your mind when you're on the way to Buckingham Palace? What's going through your mind when you're on the way to
1: Buckingham Palace is really,
2: you can't believe it's
1: happening you can't believe you're going to see the Queen, but you're also worrying hugely about what you're going to say on the steps of Downing Street, because it's one of those moments you know is very important, A, not to fall over and screw up, but B, to (laughs) set the tone for your government. And it's not a moment, I think, where you should put out some great big script and stand at elect, and people want to see you standing there, saying your piece from the heart about what you want to do. So I was intensely worried about not forgetting what I wanted to say. Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I have accepted. Before I talk about that new government, let me say something about the one that has just passed. Compared with a decade ago, this country is more open at home and more compassionate abroad and that is something we should all be grateful for. And on behalf of the whole country, I would like to pay tribute to the outgoing Prime Minister for his long record of dedicated public service. In terms of the future, our country has a hung parliament where no party has an overall majority and we have some deep and pressing problems. A huge deficit, deep social problems and a political system in need of reform. But the sort of, uh, the excitement of it is, is, a, is an extraordinary moment. When you're driving up the Mall to see the Queen, you can't really believe it's happening.
2: You talk about when you go into Buckingham Palace, almost sort of having to step over sleeping corgis, and
1: yes, so it's the same. You you, and then you have your weekly audience. You sort of go in pretty much the same door every time, and up in the lift with the same private secretary. And then the corgis almost seem to be asleep in the same places. <laughs> so it's a, it, it becomes a very familiar part of your week, and you go and sit in the same room waiting for the audience to start, and then off you go.
2: You you got into a bit of trouble when you let slip one of your conversations with the Queen when you said that she purred.
1: Oh, it was, I was so... it was a, After the Scottish I was independence. Was a, I should... It was very, very stupid of me. I was talking to Mike Bloomberg um, and I should never have said it anyway, but I said it when there was a camera and a microphone that picked up what I said and oh, it was, it was um, terrible. Anyway, I apologised, grovelled uh, a lot. <laughs> did you get um, on with the Queen? Was she, did you- I, they were great meetings because in this hectic life that I've tried to explain of all the different things you're juggling and doing it's like a sort of fixed point. You know, every Wednesday at six o'clock, off you go, and there's only two of you in the room. There's no one taking notes, there's no one else listening. And I often found as you were trying to explain what had happened that week, A, you were listening to the world's greatest public servant, but B, as you're explaining it, sometimes it clarified things in your own mind because your week's so hectic, there isn't much time when you sit and actually just think through what has happened. Um, and she always asks incredibly perceptive uh, questions. So I found it, and, and as I think Tony Blair put it very well. He said, you know, there isn't a Prime Minister who doesn't walk out of that room feeling two inches taller. And you do, because you've just spent time with one of the most remarkable people in the world.
2: And given that her first Prime Minister was Winston Churchill, <clears throat> there's a slight sense that what might well, seem that, that like a terrible is, moment for you. She might think, well, I've seen all this well, before. You know,
1: that cuts both ways. You think uh, you've, you've seen extraordinary times in our nation's history. But also, as you're sort of saying what's wrong with your health reforms or why the economy isn't growing fast enough, you sort of think, oh, gosh, you know, I'm Prime Minister number 12. She's literally heard all this before, <laughs> every excuse in the book. You know, there's no there's no hiding place. But uh, no, they were, they were. I think it's a, as Badgett would call it, a dignified part of our constitution, but it's also quite an efficient one. I think it helps the Prime Minister do their job.
2: And you also, one of the perks of the job, if you like, is you also get to go to Balmoral, and, yes. and that seems more relaxed... Yes, uh, I mean, it sort of seems, to, seems odd to, <laughs> to
1: say. I mean, there you are, you're going to stay in a castle in Scotland and you're saying, as I say in the book, that it's very relaxing and also you see the royal family in relaxation. I think, I mean, it is a haven for them and I think they, they, they love the highlands and all that it involves and walks and picnics and and the rest And the barbecue is extraordinary. So you get into a car at sort of 7 o'clock at night, often driven by the Queen herself, Driven at breakneck speed up onto the moor, and uh, she told me that when the King of Saudi Arabia stayed, that she drove him, and so he, she's the only woman to have driven the King of Saudi Arabia. And I, I had this, and when I went to Saudi Arabia, the King of Saudi Arabia told me that story. So I have this, as you'd say, double source. That's double this source story. And and then off you go to a sort of bothier old um, shepherd's, um, not a shepherd's hut, a, a sort of shepherd's <laughs> house almost, up on the. Up on the hill, and there's the Duke of Edinburgh cooking grouse on a barbecue, a barbecue that he himself has, has designed and built. And that is that's extraordinary to, to sort of be cooked for by Her Majesty the Queen and, and Prince Philip. So you, you go and see the Queen, you kiss hands. What's explain? the kissing hands thing isn't that's not quite right. You you when you join the Privy Council, you have to kiss hands. When you form a government, there's no kissing involved. You you go and you, you know, seek permission to form a government. It's so much accepted that that's why you're going, that that conversation barely even takes place. But that's that's, that's sort that's of what's, about, that's that's what's happening. Of and, and obviously, in my case, in 2010, because the coalition hadn't... We hadn't absolutely pulled it all together before Gordon Brown resigned. I was in this position of sort of saying, um, I'd like to form a government. I can't tell you exactly what sort of government is going <laughs> to be. I hope it's going to be a coalition, but but can I... Get back to you. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, this is, although Her Majesty the Queen has seen everything, this is actually something in her reign that is novel.
2: So you head back to Downing Street. You do your speech on the steps of Number Ten. You walk through the door. You're sort of clapped in. The
1: clapping in is interesting because you recognise a few of the faces of people you 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 know, but then an awful lot of people you've never seen before. But there's this sort of enthusiastic welcome, and then you go straight into the Prime Minister's study, which is the one I used uh, for the whole of my time in office. And the phone is sort of almost hot in the hand of your Bernard, as it were, your private secretary. And it's usually, the, in my case, it was the President of the United States, Barack Obama, saying, uh, well done, David. He said, well done. Congratulations. Enjoy this moment. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> um, which wasn't entirely right. But uh, anyway, he was a, so then then calls with lots of people. and And you're straight then into forming your cabinet. Because, of course, I think this was, you know, late in the evening. We wanted, we knew, you know, you've got to appoint the cabinet the next day. You've got to make a start with confirming your foreign secretary and your chancellor. And so it's straight down to business.
2: You had a call from another famous American on election night.
1: Yes, Arnie, the Terminator. That I think was while I was still in Whitney at the Count. And weirdly in Whitney, it takes place in the, um, in the leisure center. And so I was in this sort of quite in a back room, a sort of smelly gym, surrounded by weights. Um, and sort of, you know, exercise machines. So to get a call from the Terminator in those surroundings seem, seem um, uh, pretty appropriate. No, We've been friends for a while, and um, he was ringing to say, well done.
2: One of the first jobs as Prime Minister that you have to do is the, the letters for the nuclear yes. submarines. that doesn't happen absolutely
1: immediately, but fairly quickly. You have to write what are called the letters of last resort, because we have a, a, a nuclear submarine with our deterrent on board uh, continuously at sea all the time. And in the ghastly event that Britain was attacked and communications were down between the United Kingdom and the submarine, the commander of that submarine needs to know what to do in the last resort. So you're briefed by a senior naval figure. They wheel this giant shredder into your office and then run through what the options potentially are or you could make up some of your own. They leave you with a whole set of different letters that you can adapt as you see fit. And then you shred all the ones you don't use so that nobody knows what you chose. And it is a moment where you just feel the full weight of responsibility that you've taken on. I spoke to John Major and asked what he had um, done. You're not totally alone. You can seek advice and counsel. And then I shredded everything and, and sealed up my letter. But this was a rather comic moment that as I handed it over to the naval Attaché. the envelope pinged open. And so there was a sort of (laughs) sudden call for sellotape and Pritt stick. And, you know, so it was like even at this moment of great importance that things can still go wrong. The
2: envelope you thought was only to be opened in the event of a nuclear attack pops open in front of you. Yes, but it was sealed up. And then
1: actually I I, I visited one of our Trident submarines. I was actually lowered from a helicopter onto a moving submarine and went down and met the crew and the, the, the captain and all the rest and then actually saw the safe where the letter of last resort is kept. And that was a sort of reminder. But now mine are gone. So as soon as you leave office, your letters are shredded, uh, never to be revealed. And then the next Prime Minister does the same thing. And I know the promise that I made to all of you, that we would double the operational allowance. And I can tell you today, It is going to be doubled, you're going to get it next month, and it's going to be backdated to the date of the general election. And I'm proud to be able to stand here and say it.
2: You talk a lot about the weight of responsibility of deploying troops or not deploying troops and going to bed almost holding your phone, particularly if there's a military operation or hostage situation.
1: You, You think about that more than anything else. I mean, you're taking very big economic decisions, decisions that affect people's lives, but the you know, when I became prime minister, we were at war in Afghanistan. We were losing people on an almost daily, but certainly a weekly basis. And that weighs on you more heavily than anything. So you you try and stay on top of every detail of that, of how the campaign's going. I think that during the time I was leader of the opposition and prime minister, I think I went to Afghanistan 13 times, particularly when there's an operation. I remember there were one one or two times, but more than one or two times, where there was a attempt at a hostage rescue where you'd you know, given the go-ahead for something to happen. And you just were desperate to know what, what had happened and whether it had gone ahead or whether the weather conditions were right. And then if it had, what had happened. And those are the nights you sort of sleep, as I, as I say, with the phone almost in your hand because you're waiting for the call and you can't wait to hear what has
2: what has happened to, 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 to try and ease the pain of that family. Security concerns obviously impact on you as well. You, from day one, have police Security. Yes, protection you have
1: it from the start of the election campaign, so you, you have a little bit of time to get used to it. But it, it is very odd to to start with. I remember going for sort of one of my first days, going for a run around St. James's Park, which I love doing. And, you know, as you run back into the building, you know, you've got one of those protection team with the microphone up his sleeve, putting it up to his mouth and going, The boss is back in the building. You say, Who's that? You say, oh, that's me. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And I think I tell the story in the book about going out to dinner with Samantha quite early on, and, and she sort of leant over to me and whispered, those people on the table next door, I'm sure I recognise them. I went, yes darling, they're the protection team, you know. She thought it was sort of <laughs> Fred and Mavis Dips <laughs> from next door in, in And do you ever get used to it? Um, do you become friends with
2: them? I mean, it's, yeah, it's you
1: weird. Yeah, you know, you become very close to them. I've, I've obviously now had protection ever since 2010, and some people have been on, they tend to rotate, they, they go off and work for Tony Blair or Gordon Brown and but you sometimes have people for, for two years and maybe you'll have them again for another two years people you become very friendly they get to know your family very well Florence has nicknames for all of them she gets into the car often and, and asks if a new one turns up and then within ten minutes they'll be called you know Amazing Andy or you know, <laughs> Hopeless Henry or whatever I mean, she just you know and, and I, I'm sitting there sort of cringing it's these poor police officers having to deal with them.
0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
2: Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. I want to talk to you about PMQs because yes. every Prime Minister, good yes. or, whether they they were perceived to be good or bad at them, always say that they dreaded it or hated it. Or what was your view of?
1: You do dread it because you know, the difference between success and failure is so, you know, on a knife edge it can turn. You can be really getting your point across and then one verbal slip, one failure to answer a question, one thing that comes at you that you weren't ready for, one thing that comes out wrong and it's a disaster. And I was always very bad at hiding how I felt about it. I mean, I blushed very, so if I screwed up, you could always tell because my ears would glow red like a sort of garden gnome.
2: Um, and, and describe, you could tell Describe you know, how you prepared for it because you get given all these problems so I
1: think I got that under quite good control because the, the, when I worked for John Major it was twice a week and it just took over his whole week and I thought that was nuts so when Tony Blair changed it to once a week I remember Michael Howard saying I'm going to change it back and George Osborne and I looked at each other and said well if you do we're not going to work for you because <laughs> we used to help him how I prepared was on Monday one of the very talented officials at number 10 would sort of come in and start running through what they thought the likely issues would be on Wednesday, and then on Tuesday, you'd have a proper uh, meeting uh, uh, about it and take a sort of big folder to bed. But the main work was done on Wednesday morning, which, and I assembled a great team of people um, like Kate Fall and Gabby Burton and um, Danny Finkelstein and Michael Gove, who came out. Michael Gove came out with the funniest lines. I mean, some of them completely uh, unusable. He, he wrote poems and raps. But, he was very good at linking something from popular culture with some, <laughs> Uh, reference to what was going on in, in, in politics. And used to have a all in stitches. But and then, and then I used to throw them all out. I used to go to the Commons very early. Blair always used to go at the last minute. I used to go, you know, half past ten and sit there for a long time on my own reading all the material and literally sort of cutting bits up and sticking them down into my own folder so I knew where everything was. But when you were doing that, you were often at sort of about half past eleven on a Wednesday, you were just, you were thinking, oh God, oh God, oh God, why am I doing this? It's so impossible, the tension, the stress, you know, because it is very, very stressful. Then once you get going, it was normally okay.
2: What do you think was your best moment at the PMQs? Joe, I think probably
1: or- one of the worst, but sort of, I mean, the one I, I, I sort of, do, I have to admit, enjoying, was the Ed Miliband two kitchens. I can see the Shadow Chancellor chuckling. We, we know the Shadow Chancellor wants to be in the kitchen cabinet. He just doesn't know which kitchen to turn up to. I do feel sorry. I feel sorry for the Leader of the Opposition. He literally doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. Oh, don't worry, there's plenty more. We increased the doctors, we increased the nurses, and frankly, if he can't stand the heat, he better get out of his second kitchen. Because he had thrown at me, you know, posh all this crap for, you know, years, when it was revealed he had two kitchens, and hadn't, you know, I had the corniest set of jokes, I admit, you know. He literally doesn't know where his next meal's coming from, and if you can't get out... If you can't stand the heat, get out of one of your kitchens. I mean, they were terrible jokes, but there was a, there was a sort of... <laughs> You know, when you'd taken so much on the posh front, it was quite nice to um, give some of it back. But I think the, the ones, in a way, that, that are more memorable are actually the ones when either there's some big national event that's taking place when the House of Commons comes together. And that extraordinary... What I loved about the House of Commons was its mood turns on a sixpence. It can go from angry and disputatious to incredibly united without any warning. And it has an incredible sort of bullshit detector. You know, the thing I always found amazing about the House of Commons was people always chatting and talking while you're speaking. But if anyone actually knows what they're talking about, everyone shuts up. And I always used to think, how do they know to shut up when they're not listening and they're talking to each other? But it does, it almost, it's like a sort of wave goes across the place. I'm not saying I always knew what I was talking about, but I'm saying with anyone with direct personal experience, started to talk about something at any stage in the House of Commons, the place would fall silent and people would listen.
2: I was looking back through. There's loads of things there. the pasty gate confusing West Ham and Aston Villa, oh. leaving Nancy oh. in a pub. What do you think was the, the, the your biggest gaff while you were prime minister?
1: I think West Ham and Aston Villa because to this day I still don't understand how I said it. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think I got to the bottom of it, which was on the auto queue. It said, it basically, was saying something about whether you cheer for. England or the West Indies. And I said Windies rather than West Indies. And I went off the auto queue, and I had West in my head. And that's why I said West Ham. But I still think, I mean, what a crazy, you know, stupid thing to... They played each other the other night. I thought that was a yeah, game. It like, was a game I'd probably it's, scared, known a I cam, it's known as the Cameron Derby, I think. <laughs> I'm playing against myself. Um, um, that was probably... I mean, the one that worried me the most, obviously, was, was leaving Nancy in the pub. Because of that one moment, um, you know, you, you do have a total fear about what has happened. But, but um, she was incredibly relaxed about it. She was behind the bar, you know, pulling the pints and helping out. <laughs> <laughs> and still to this day has the cartoon in her bedroom, which says, you know, her, it's her sitting on a bar stool with her head in her hand saying, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. I've left my father running the country. It's, it's a very good cartoon.
2: Just very quickly, a couple of quickfire ones. Have you turned down a knighthood?
1: Uh, uh, no, I've, I've, um, I'm very happy uh, as I am.
2: <laughs> have you stopped listening to the Smiths, as Johnny Marr no, told you? No, I'm,
1: I'm, um, I've noticed that actually Morrissey's political views seem to have, you know, he's, he's, he's gone <laughs> rushing past me. <laughs> and, um, um, no, uh, Jess, who helped me massively with the book, and I are, are, are both lifelong Morrissey and Smiths fans, and it's been a great fun getting my children into the Smiths. Strangely, Florence's favorite song is the first of the gang to die, which worries me a bit, age, age nine, but it is, it is it is, a brilliant song. So I read actually uh, Johnny Mars' biography, which is a great book, really, it was really fascinating. But the, the ban he put on me listening to the Smiths is still, as far as he's concerned, it's still in place, but luckily Spotify is a, a liberating uh, medium, so they can't stop me.
2: Who was the most annoying person in cabinet meetings? <laughs> Probably me, I
1: guess. Look, okay, no, there was no one. I mean, I had a very, I had a great cabinet. There was no one who really uh, annoyed me. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been there, I guess.
2: Final question for some of uh, listeners. Yeah. James Elliott said, uh, for lots of us, when we get our dream job, we then realise that we have got no idea how to do it. And more worryingly, you realise that all the people around you don't know what they're doing either. Is that what it's like when you're Prime Minister? Or do you reach a stage where you think, I know what I'm doing, I'm good at it, and I'm loving it?
1: I, I think the that- Truth is, there's no proper way to prepare for being prime minister.
2: But being leader of the
1: opposition for five years isn't a bad preparation, because, of course, every day you've had to get up and think, not only have I got to try and, you know, win at prime minister's questions or make this conference speech or do this visit, you've had to think, well, what would I do if I was prime minister? You've you've started to meet. It's a good training. Other, so it's a bit of training. So that helps. Tony Blair puts it very well when he says, um, you know, you start with maximum power and minimum ability, and you end with maximum ability and minimum power because obviously your authority wanes. I think there's some truth in that. I also think there's some truth that, like in any business, when I talk to business people, they, they talk about, I'm spending too much time working in the business for me to really work on the business. And I think that's quite similar. As prime minister, you've got to master all these different disciplines, handling the cabinet, handling the House of Commons, handling the summits and the EUs and the G8s and the rest of it, um, dealing with very sensitive national security issues. There's a sort of set of stuff you've got to work on and get right. And there is a moment several years down the track, where you think, right, I've really, I've got most of these things nailed about how to do them. And then you can spend much more time on what you should be doing, which is thinking about the future direction of the, of the country. So it's not, you don't arrive thinking, I've, I've, I've no idea what to do, nor does anyone else. And you have a very capable civil service machine that are there to, to help you.
2: And if someone's listening to this and thinking maybe in 5, 10, 20 years' time, despite all the abuse and whatever that you might get, they might want to be prime minister, what one piece of advice would you give to them? And look, I
1: believe deeply
2: in public service. I mean, that to me, it's a vocation. I, I found,
1: you know, after leaving university and starting work, that I, nothing else inspired me in the same way as wanting to be a member of parliament, serve my community, do my bit, put back in, and, and try and, you know, do some, some, some useful things. And I think it's an incredible vocation. So for all the sort of fury and argument and passions and frustrations and all the rest of it, You know, when I talk to young people starting out on their lives, I'm always saying to people, think about the civil service exams, think about the foreign office, think about politics, think about public service. It is incredibly satisfying work. And in spite of all the difficulties we're having at the moment, that remains the case. And, And the British constitution and system and civil service and way of doing things, in spite of everything, is still a beacon to many in the world. And at the heart of it is this concept of the rule of law, that no one is above the law. And if we hold on to that, we won't go too far wrong.
2: David Cameron, thank you very much. My pleasure. Don't forget you can read the extracts from for the record at thetimes.co.uk and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, ACast, or wherever you listen. My thanks to David Cameron. For me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Planning for your next trip?